Good afternoon, and this is Midday Magazine for Tuesday, May 16th. I'm Julie Hersey. Jim Moore bought his troller in 1970, and this summer will mark his 53rd year as a professional salmon fisherman. Eric Jordan was not born on a troller, but when he was still an infant, his parents rigged a bunk for him in the cabin of their boat, a 32-foot double-ender named Salty, and he could watch them fish for king salmon through a porthole. Having fished every year since, Jordan is about to turn 73 years old. Jackie Foss does not yet have that kind of seniority, but she might one day. She and her husband fish as a family with their 8- and 10-year-old children on board. These three Sitka-based trollers are typical of the Southeast Alaska fleet. They have exceptional longevity and a difficult profession and a multi-generational investment in their businesses. With King Salmon trolling under threat of a closure from a federal lawsuit, Robert Woolsey met with Jordan, Foss, and Moore to discuss the impact that no Chinook fishing this summer and winter could have in their personal and professional lives. In part two of their conversation, they discussed the importance of king salmon to the identity of Alaska trollers. Every year the fish, it's exactly the same and nothing alike. You're in the water, you're dragging hooks, but are they going to hit the herring this year? Or is it going to be this spoon? Or is it going to be the spoon that you have buried in there that worked 10 years ago that might work now? Um, It's about the puzzle, and it's about the fact that our entire year really starts July 1. That's our new year. Our whole life is centered around that July 1st opener. I'm just so blessed to have found a, a, a livelihood doing something so interesting and creative. Every single day is different, and it presents a whole new set of problems to solve. You know, I think I'll try that green thing that I used 15 years ago and then have them hit it. You know, that's a tremendous feeling, you know, success. And it's just like this anticipation and joy and just the puzzle of King Salmon because they could be where they've always been. They could not be there. You could have a 10 fish day. You could have a 300 fish day. A 300 fish day is a feat. A 100 is a lot, but just your arms are tired, but you're not tired. It's hard to come up with the words. What I said in my deposition on this Wild Fish Conservancy suit, because we handle each fish individually, our connection with them is strong. And we we care about them. We respect them. And that comes from my friend Amy Gullick's book captures it well, The Salmon Way in Alaska, from the indigenous origins thousands of years ago right to the present. We honor these creatures and in trolling that especially that offer themselves to us for us to sustain our bodies with the finest food on earth but also sustain them by fighting to protect their spawning grounds, their passageways, their lives. And that's what breaks our heart because we are fighting for them and now we're being excluded from their harvest it's hard to not develop a connection when you are intimately involved with ending a creature's life and it's not something that anyone takes lightly and you're right you are right you're right there and it's it's not easy but it's 
good because you know that you're taking care of the creature quickly, as painlessly as you can. If you're going to take life and you're going to extract a resource and you're going to eat meat, you, it's really important to do that as respectfully to the creature that you're taking it from as possible. Let me tell you, there's a lot of grief in the troll fleet, a lot of grief in families, and people need help. So not only do we have to think about making financial arrangements so people can uh, make or delay their payments with the state or CFAB or whoever else, banks, we also need to think about mental health counseling mm -hmm. for people who are devastated and don't know how they're going to feed their families, literally. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the product that we produce. This whole battle, court battle with Wild Fish Conservancy, you know, trying to shut down a food producing industry, you know, without considering, that, you know, there's 300 million people right now, not killer whales, 300 million people are starving to death. There's 2 billion people that are food insecure, as they say. And I just feel sick about all of the energy being spent, all of the resources being s spent just to try to try to be able to continue to produce food for people. That was Jim Moore, Jackie Foss, and Eric Jordan discussing the role of king salmon in the identity of Southeast Alaskan trawlers with Robert Woolsey. In part three of this conversation, they'll share their views on conservation and the importance of healthy oceans to the sustainability of their industry. As winter thaws and the ground becomes squishy, Petersburg Borough's groundskeeper Colin Perry has a major horizon on his mind, Mayfest. The Little Norway Festival takes place this week. Perry had to get flowers in the ground and looking beautiful before Petersburg's biggest annual festival. Spring also means he can restart his work maintaining Petersburg Cemetery. Perry takes care of the landscape around Petersburg's late loved ones. Rachel Cassandra joined Perry in his greenhouse at work and for a rainy walk around the cemetery to see the start of spring through his eyes. These are all my sunflowers. They're getting they're, there, big. They're doing well. Last year, I kind of had some mishaps, and they didn't turn out very well, so I'm looking for redemption this year. <laughs> it's very, very tricky working with the deer. We have to cage a lot of things in, but I've got a lot of marigolds growing, and the geraniums, those are two that the deer really don't like, so I try and grow enough of those that I can spread them out through the gardens to help slow them down. Dusty Millers, pansies, a couple different types of daisies, the nasturtiums. The nasturtiums are always a big hit around town. People love those. They make tons of flowers, but they vine out as well. So they are really great for, you know, covering hand railings and posts and stuff like that. They're also edible. I find people in the parks all the time picking them and eating them. So, you know, more power to them. Traditionally, the last frost date is May 15th. So trying to get everything in the ground safely and have it looking good for Mayfest by May 17th, it's a bit of a, a challenge sometimes because like the nasturtiums that everybody loves so much, one good frost will kill them dead instantly. So those ones I typically wait until like a day or two before Mayfest to plant them. But yeah, that week before Mayfest, it's uh, just a planting frenzy. So the town goes from nothing to 
everything. I've just got one helper. His name's Daniel Pust. He likes doing the kind of work we do where we're just making stuff look good. You'll see our two little trucks driving around town, back of them full of flowers. And, and it's very gratifying in that sense, you know. It's like when, when you get done doing your job, you can see your results, and it's really nice. That's the rest of the cemetery. This is, this is a lot of work in itself. I've actually got a headstone right here in the truck. We've got two more in the garage that I got over the winter that we need to put in. Do you wait till the snow's gone to do that work? Yeah, I typically wait till the snow's gone and the ground is thawed out. Not this winter, but the winter before, we got a tremendous amount of snow, really, really heavy snow. And unfortunately, it sunk a lot of the headstones. So that's another job we have to do is we actually lift them up and then we'll put rock underneath of them to bring them up level with the ground. They're really heavy. You know, as people bring stuff up, the flowers and whatnot, as the flowers die and go to go to waste, we'll remove those and clean them up. Try and just keep the place looking tidy. All the headstones, you can see the grass growing over them. We have to weed eat every headstone in this place. That alone can take several days. And we also, you know, we do the burials. Public Works comes out and assists with that. So we get about six guys going on those. Yeah, this aspect of the job can be, can be kind of difficult just for the fact of I was born and raised here. Everybody knows everybody. So even if I'm not close to the person that I'm, you know, hosting a funeral for, I know somebody that is. I think it was the third funeral I had to do. It was a really close friend of mine that I grew up with. That was pretty difficult. It really made me wonder if I wanted to do this job. But I've uh, really grown to appreciate it. I've had a lot of people come up here and and truly just let their guard down as soon as they saw me and thank me for being here because they're having a hard time. And uh, it was, I guess, comforting for them knowing they had somebody they know here to help them out. They knew everything was going to get taken care of, so I've gotten kind of attached to it in that sense. I almost feel like I have an obligation now to, to make sure everybody's taken care of properly. There's a lot of people that come up here. There's probably a dozen people that are up here almost weekly. I see people all the time that will drive up here and sometimes they just sit in their car, you know, and they just sit here for 20 minutes and listen to music or whatever they're doing, but they're coming up to spend a little time with a loved one. So right now it's kind of hard for me because there are people that come up here and they see a headstone that's sunken, you know, and when you see the look on their face, it's, it really is tough to deal with, you know, it's, you want to do everything you can to, to make them feel better so and that's another one of the really good parts about the job is you know when you get done with the funeral and the people come up here and they see the headstone and it looks beautiful and everything's nice and you know they bring me a pie or you know whatever and they're very grateful so it's possibly the only job I've ever had that people thank me you know this much and really show their appreciation for what I'm doing so that goes a long way it, it really does, knowing that you're making a difference for people at the end of the day. That was Petersburg Parks and Recreation groundskeeper Colin Perry speaking with former reporter Rachel Cassandra. Perry and his colleague Daniel Pust prepared Petersburg's landscapes for Mayfest by planting flowers. The Alaska Senate has passed a bill that would increase state funding for public schools. 
Anchorage Democratic Senator Bill Wilikowski called Thursday a historic day. We've had huge inflation spikes. We've had school closings across the state being proposed. We've had uh, thousands of teachers' positions and uh, other school administrator positions unfilled. The bill would increase the base student allocation by $680 starting in July. The amount of per-student state funding has not increased since 2017, and many teachers and administrators say the $30 increase planned for next year is not enough. North Pole Republican Senator Robert Myers introduced an amendment to require most of the bill's funding increase to go directly to teachers' salaries. Ensuring that we have high-quality teachers is one of the best ways to ensure that we're spending money that actually solves our performance issues rather than just throwing money at the problem. That amendment failed along with several others. Anchorage Democratic Senator Lukey Tobin said addressing inflation more broadly should be the starting point. Our schools have fixed costs. They still have to heat the classrooms. They still need to pay for the Internet. They need to make sure the lights stay on. And as their purchasing power has been eroded due to high inflation, they are experiencing this struggle where they have to balance retaining their teachers or trying to make sure that their buildings stay habitable and operable. The bill passed in a 16-3 to vote with Myers and Republican Senators Shelley Hughes and David Wilson voting no. First Lady Jill Biden will be in Bethel this week. She's on a mission to highlight the achievements of the bipartisan infrastructure law of 2021. Her visit to Bethel tomorrow will focus on the expansion of broadband in the region. Biden also visited Alaska in 2021, stopping in Anchorage on her way to the Olympic Games in Tokyo. She met with military families and spoke at the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. According to her office, this will be the first visit to Bethel by any spouse of a sitting president. Melania Trump, as First Lady, visited Joint Base Elmendorf-Richardson in Anchorage in 2017 and also met with military families. The bipartisan infrastructure law that Biden will highlight authorizes more than a trillion dollars in spending over 10 years. Alaska's share includes at least $3.5 billion in highway projects and $100 million from one of its broadband programs. And that concludes the news portion of Midday Magazine. And we'll be back with a look at the weather and marine weather forecasts.